0: You doing podcasts adam buxton here yeah guess where i am that's right halfway up a mountain in peru with bear grills and some hipster drug smugglers no i'm not i'm in east anglia i got my routine i'm sticking to it as long as i can i'm out here with rosie hey rose give us a hug i love you dog Telling Rose I love her in her own voice, must be confusing for her. As I speak, it's a blustery evening, but the sun is going down and I'm looking out over a field that was harvested a while back and is now covered with stubble, little short straw stumps. And the spider community have woven threads between the tops of every stump and now that the sun is low on the horizon. It's all backlit. So it looks like uh, you're very, very high above thousands of tiny little golden rope bridges stretched between a forest of very straight trees. It's quite a spectacular sight. Shut up, Buckles. Tell us about the podcast. All right. Podcast number 83 features a conversational ramble with British actor, writer, comedian and action figure Simon Pegg. I got to know Simon at the end of the 90s, after seeing him in TV shows like I'm Alan Partridge, Brass Eye and, of course, the sitcom Spaced, directed by Edgar Wright, featuring co-writer Jessica Hines and Nick Frost and Mark Heap and so many other great, great people. And I would bump into all that lot at uh, social events in London, now and then, during the early 2000s, and it was always good to see them. And then in 2006, Edgar cast me as annoying local reporter Tim Messenger in Hot Fuzz, which he had co-written with Simon. And I enjoyed a very happy couple of weeks with Simon and the rest of the cast on location in Wells where my character was superbly and gorily dispatched by a falling church spire. By the time Hot Fuzz came out in 2007, Simon had also appeared in Mission Impossible 3 alongside Tom Cruise, and he was off on a path that has seen him continue to work with Edgar and Nick Frost, as well as, as far as I can tell, pretty much all of his childhood heroes on projects like Steven Spielberg's Tintin and Ready Player One, more Impossible Missions with the Cruiser, and various jaunts into the universes of Star Wars and Star Trek, all of which we talked about in this conversation, which, incidentally, was recorded in October of this year, 2018, at Simon's house out in the country, north of London, where he lives with his wife, Maureen, and his daughter, Tilly. Simon and I sat down in his front room with some tea and embarked on a highly enjoyable catching up session, swapping notes about booze, drugs and childhood romance, before getting to grips with important nerd business. We also compared notes on parenthood, specifically our efforts to uh, culturally indoctrinate our children which led us on to talking more about one of my favourite ever TV sketch shows, Big Train, written by Graham Linehan and Arthur Matthews, which Simon was in, of course, alongside people like Amelia Bullmore and Kevin Eldon, Julia Davis, Catherine Tate, Mark Heap, and many more we chatted a little bit about those days. I've put a couple of links to the sketches, the Big Train sketches that we mentioned, in the description of this podcast. Along with some other related bits and pieces, including a trailer for Slaughterhouse Rules, a horror comedy which Simon appears in with Nick Frost. That's just been released as I speak, but we failed to talk about it. We were just too busy with important catching up business. I'll be back at the end for a a brief recommendation and a goodbye, but right now, here we go. How are you doing? I'm good, how are you? Oh, I'm all right. Yeah, not too bad. I can't believe it's that long since I've seen it's you. It's a long time. We were trying to figure out, like when we last saw each other, and I think it may have been just shortly after Hot Fuzz, so That's incredible. over 10 years ago. I don't feel like it's that long. No, because I see you, I see you in like films and stuff. <laughs> I know, and I hear your voice a lot. Yeah.
1: And we watch it because Tilly loves uh, Party Pom Pom. Oh, okay. And also knows you because of things that, you know, because I've shown her clips on YouTube, also she saw her fars and it's like a weird elevated social media that you feel like you're in touch with people, but you're not when you see them on the TV. And... That's
0: right. And also, you and I both live uh, in the countryside. Yes. And as we were saying before, we don't really get out much. Don't go to too many parties. I certainly no, don't. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that is one of the very few lessons I've learned as a kind of grown-up man... Yeah. ...is that actually you don't really need to go to most parties.
1: No, and I don't sort of... Because I don't drink anymore and I'm married. The primary reasons for going out have been removed. (laughs) I don't want to get drunk and I don't want to meet anybody. So why bother? I find myself doing that if we go out to something... Like, if me and Maureen go out to, like, you know, a thing... And then there's a party afterwards. I just want to leave immediately. Mm. I don't want to stay.
0: And it would be okay if there were lots of other people there who weren't interested in those things. Yeah. But that's the thing, is that most people are on yeah. one of those missions.
1: And then you get to that point in the evening when the people around you, you lose everybody. Like, they start yeah. to change. And and you, and and you it dawns on you that everybody sort of becomes an arsehole at about 10 o'clock. And you wonder why you didn't notice before, and it was because you were one as well. Yeah, you were the biggest one. And you just... Yeah, Yeah, totally. (laughs) I was, particularly. But it's an odd feeling of suddenly, like, even with Mo, like, we go out and... Because she is less averse to going out than I am. So if we go out, she makes the most of it. She barely drinks. And if we do go out, she'll have a glass of wine or something. And even with her, it's like, oh, she's gone now. (laughs) right okay do you know what I mean
0: you weren't a big arsehole though you uh, were you I mean yeah were you well I was a big drinker you're hard on yourself though I think I mean I think I was probably quite a charming drinker yeah but I wasn't I wasn't a nasty drunk I never thought of you as a massive boozer I must say
1: yeah it was a problem and I think I think I was just depressed and alcohol changed how I felt for a little bit half an hour yeah so then you had to drink a bit more
0: right you know did you? And so, so looking back, did you always feel that you were that way or did, did it sort of become a problem at a certain point? After I
1: left college, before I went to Bristol University, I had a summer of depression and, and was pretty locked away by it. And so I feel like I've always kind of been susceptible to it. And then, and then it just crept back over time. And I think there's that odd, that odd thing of, of life is sort of demanding that you be happy because everything seems to be working out. But when you're not... It's confusing. And so all this stuff was happening, you know, with my career taking off, but I was fundamentally unhappy. And, and I think alcohol was a way of trying to remedy that. Mm. Of course, it doesn't work. It's not a cure. You can't self-medicate mm-hmm. with that because it just makes you more sad. But, you know, since that, since I sorted it out... I've Have been, you tried
0: Bacardi Breezers? I haven't. Maybe I'll give it a Maybe shot. Maybe you were just <laughs> drinking the wrong stuff. <laughs> Maybe I should drink more sugar with my alcohol. I'm being clear. But... um it's hard to uh, pinpoint exactly why you felt that way, I suppose, but it doesn't have a reason.
1: Do you know what I mean? It's not that you're not sad when you're depressed. You can be incredibly up when you're depressed. It's just an odd sense of, of being out of sorts with the world, you know, that was always in the background all through Sean and Hot Fuzz. Hot Fuzz, I came out of it a little bit because I think I had to get into shape to play Nicholas Angel. And I remember, I, and I,
0: yeah, I remember you sitting there eating your seeds. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> and that was a weird kind of natural sort of way of lifting myself. It gave me a bit of purpose, and I really enjoyed it. And then, but then after Hot Fuzz, I kind of slid back down again. Mm-hmm. And then, and then just before Mission Impossible Goes Protocol, I kind of switched it all around, and now I feel great. You know. Yeah.
0: You look very well. Thank you. Hot Fuzz was fun, though. I mean, I only did a couple of weeks on it. It was great fun. Um, You had a spectacular death in Hot Fuzz. It's one of the greatest. I was thinking the other day about, you know, we're we're that age now. We're starting to consider mortality and people are dying here and there. (laughs) All over the place. Having fun, morbid thoughts. So I was thinking, like, about how I would like to die. And I was thinking if, (laughs) if I really got it together, I could actually just go back to Wells And I could organize an event (laughs) where maybe like someone who I fell out with in my life or something, I could say, would you like to come and kill me in wells? (laughs) And you could push a steeple off and it would go through my head. And it would be like lots of hot fuzz fans could come. And they could all gather around. And it would be really a kind of poetic tying up of loose ends. And, of
1: course, because of the physics of it are so precise, it would probably take about six or seven goes, maybe more, just to get exactly... And then they'd have to have a crane just over you to drop it specifically on the top of your it, that's head. That's right,
0: yeah. And if it didn't quite work and I was just horribly injured... Yeah, that just, would like, took your shoulder off. Yeah. <laughs> but it would be kind of a brilliant piece of art, you know, because I keep talking to people about Bowie, and I'm such a big Bowie fan, and one of the things that was so extraordinary was the way that he seemed to orchestrate that exit and that album, and, yeah. and tie up so many loose ends and, and create a few more. But it, it just seemed so perfect. And, it was uh, so
1: fitting, wasn't it? Yeah. It was. It was really, really amazing. I'm, that. I'm sure
0: it wasn't perfect to him. He was no, in '69, but. but I mean,
1: to see to see it happen, to see it coming as as he did, knowing how inevitable it was, and just embracing that and actually making that part of his art was just so him. Yeah, and I, I remember I was driving Tilly to school. Weirdly, it's a very odd thing happened. The weekend before he died, we showed Tilly Labyrinth. Uh-huh. Tilly's my daughter. And she watched it and she kept asking, who's that man? Like, you know, she was really interested in him. And we we're like, Oh, that's David Bowie. The and man he's with a, the
0: giant packet.
1: Yeah. <laughs> who's the man who's interested in the child in an oddly <laughs> uh, weird way?
0: In a totally inappropriate way.
1: Yeah. Uh, and we said, "Oh, it's David Bowie, and he's a singer and a songwriter, and you want to hear some of his music." So we had a whole weekend of sort of doing impressions of him and stuff. Yes, your impression of him is amazing, and playing music. And then on the Monday, he died. I remember uh, driving back from dropping off, and course, six music was was like a dirge. It was everybody yeah, was screaming yeah. and crying, and I thought, "I'm not going to tell her because it just seems so unfair that I've you, you just met him and now I'm going to tell you." He died. Oh, no, she wasn't at school. That's right. I was out. I think i have been to the gym or something. I was coming back. And I, and I made up my mind on the way home not to tell her about David Bowie. And I came in and she just, <laughs> she was in the kitchen and she turned, turned around David Bowie's dead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, she must have heard it on the radio. But it was such an odd coincidence that we'd had a very Bowie-centric weekend. Mm. And it was a joy to sort of introduce. And that, you know, like she, I think Starman's her favorite song.
0: Same as my daughter. Really? Yeah. How funny. And I ended up... um, um, I'm going to get all weepy if I think about it. It was so intense. It was. Uh, Yeah, I ended up sort of singing that to her that night quite brilliantly. I mean, it was really very good. Did you suspect... You suspected he was unwell, right? There'd been some speculation. I thought that he was... Because he had a heart attack in 2004. Right. And then he retired and you didn't see much of him. And then, yes, rumours start circulating. And I think he... He certainly was unwell and he had cancer for a while I think. Yeah. You know, t- put two and two together after his well-publicized drug use in mm-hmm. the 70s yeah. and you you remember those scans of his brain that he no. that he t- had some sort of I don't know what the correct term for them is but it's a cer- certain type of photograph of the brain. Right. That revealed All these holes, really, that he'd created from taking so much coke. Wow. Hello, fact-checking Santa here. In the 70s, David Bowie played around with Kirlian photography, which was supposedly able to capture images of a person's aura. But Bowie didn't photograph his brain with it, just the tip of his finger before and after taking cocaine. In 1993, Bowie spoke to journalist Tony Parsons about a report on CNN concerning the damage cocaine does to the human brain he compared the images of the cocaine brains to swiss cheese as there were so many holes you'll find links to both these stories in the description of this podcast merry christmas (laughs) and he was obviously shocked by it and, you know, there were just huge gaps in his memory. Like, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. he didn't like talking about that period partly because he just couldn't remember a lot of what he'd done. Was this a sort of Berlin kind of era? Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, mid-70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's into all Alistair Crowley and yeah, yeah. <laughs> crazy, uh, confused bits of Nietzschean philosophy and yeah. all that stuff. And he just doesn't remember a lot of it because he was so off, off his face. Jesus. And so you think, God, he probably did take a few years off But he always looked in the best of shape though. He I mean he always his hair
1: was perfect. Yeah, yeah. He was beautiful. That I never I can't get over that mugshot of him. Yeah.
0: Which anybody would have as their ten by eight. Do you know what I mean? He just looks so good. He does look good. And you know, all the punks that all used to take speed. Yeah. That just takes years off your life. Yes. Joe Strummer and people like that. Yes, my
1: God, that sort of bathtub speed, which is just horrendous. Did
0: you ever go through that phase? Yeah. Did you?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, in the sort of, I guess, mid to late 90s, I say phase, I think me and Nick got like some one weekend and had a bizarre, I remember driving back to Gloucester for my dad's 50th, having had a crazy weekend of that stuff, and just, crying all the way down the m4 because i just split up with my girlfriend
0: oh right it
1: was a very odd time i mean it's weird when you look back at that kind of behavior and you do it when you're young because you feel so indestructible yeah and now i mean i you know I, the thought of it i can't get behind the mindset of why you would do anything that would essentially jeopardize your well-being just for a moment of feeling different you know I sound like an old fuddy-duddy
0: no, but it's what everyone goes through, isn't it? It's trying to come to terms with what, how you fit into the world and maybe you feel like you don't. Yeah, And so then you certainly get into that mindset of thinking, ah, oh, screw it, I'm just gonna...
1: Although we did it, I mean, like, ecstasy was one of those ones that just, because it was such a fun time, mm. even though there was some, you know, you paid for it on midweek, you'd feel terrible. But I remember, like, the late 90s, when we did that episode of Spaced and we all went clubbing, we were like determined to have, an, we're going to show what it's really like, that it's actually really good fun and you don't die and it's, it's good and everyone should do it and all the world leaders should, t- you know, all that crap that you think when you're that age. Considering that it might actually do you some sort of neurological damage was never even a
0: factor, I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, you, you don't think too hard about consequences at that age, do you? No. And then suddenly, within a period of just a, a year or two, Suddenly you do, and you think, oh, God, that's all you can think about. I know. I don't know, when is that? Is it 40? Uh, it certainly starts around there. I mean, I do think it's just a question of um, things happening around you, people yeah. getting ill or dying or
1: whatever. Yeah, and also having children and, right. you know, the mortality starts to uh, become an issue.
0: to sort of fire a few things at you for sort of random okay. memory blasts and you can respond or not as you see fit. I really enjoyed your book, by the way, Nerd Do Well. Oh, thanks. Which I first picked up when it came out, which is 2009. Yeah, yeah. And all I did then was scan it for references to me or Joe. <laughs> and I found a very passing reference to, to Joe and to us as I think you described us as like Teddy, teddy Bearists, 90s Teddy Bearists, <laughs> because of our little toy movies that we used to make on the yeah, yeah. TV show. But then I read it properly recently. And it was really fun. That's so funny. And one of the things that I really was intrigued by was your references to sex and relationships. Oh, really? Guilt at your first childhood sexual fumblings. Yeah. And quite well described, like, early forays into, you know, reaching up someone's sweater and that kind of thing which you don't think about too much like after a certain point especially when you're married I don't know why I don't know why I felt
1: guilty after touching her boobs but you felt really guilty didn't you? I did and I don't know why and I think it was because it was quite um, (laughs) after touching her boobs (laughs) um, it was a friend of mine I was still in touch actually I nicknamed her Meredith Cat's Anus in the book that's right but, yeah, we were on ICI Fields. but We were very young, very, very young, and barely kind of pubic, to quote Alan Partridge. And, um, and afterwards, I you know, because it was the first pair of, you know, girls' boobs. I, that doesn't sound right. The first breast I'd touched uh, and kissed, actually. And so it was kind of, and it felt like quite a radical sex act. And I think I was only about 13. And I was riding back up the hill on my grifter, and there was the sign for speed bumps. <laughs> And I genuinely looked at it and went, oh, God, no, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it was just because I'd taken a, a, a step into a, a different world. Right. it's sort of uh, a, a loss of innocence. Yeah. But then maybe it's because I was quite young, as you do. I mean, I, 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 do you remember your first sort of... Uh,
0: yeah. Uh,
1: I, I mean not 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 including you know very young kind of messing around doctors and nurses stuff. I mean like when you were doing it for the for the sake of actual
0: pleasure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pleasure. I w- I went to a co-ed school yeah. when all that was happening, you know, around between about All 10. that sex was happening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Back in those days. Back in those days. <laughs> uh, it, it was just amazingly fun and exciting and nice. Yeah. And um, uh, there was a snogging competition. I remember. Oh yeah, all that getting. I remember
1: going to parties and like they would just devolve into kind of you know safe orgies. You know? Yeah, everyone was yeah. just everybody was just snogging in silence.
0: I had the record for the longest snog at school, and we would have uh, it was a prep school, and on the weekends. They would do movie showings in the gym, yeah, and that would be a big social occasion. And they'd turn the lights off, and there'd be a lot of snogging, yeah, 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 uh, yeah. from the older children. And uh, the end of term film one year was Hawk the Slayer. Oh, yeah. So I snogged... That's a very horny movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know because I've never seen it. I've heard it, but we started snogging me and Alison at the beginning of Hawk the Slayer. I closed my eyes. I don't know if she kept hers open yeah. or not. But we snogged. There was some French kissing, and it was pretty drooly. And um, we snogged for the length of Hawk the Slayer. So, I mean, 90 minutes wow. or something.
1: You could probably check that out on IMDb for an exact timing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, it came on TV a few years afterwards, and it was such a straight. I was like... Uh, well, I wasn't watching. It was on in the background. Did I you get a Pavlovian... <laughs> Boner. Boner. <laughs> I don't think it was boner time uh, in the original like it, it was pre bonersville I think. <laughs> so it was pure it was I mean it was also very boring. We would literally just uh, all the passion had gone out of it. It was purely like we're gonna Got to keep it going,
1: we're gonna do this. We're
0: gonna go racco.
1: <laughs> it's an odd kind of magnetism though. I, I used to go into this our school had a swimming pool. And there was, there were like uh, the foyer of the of the pool, and then the the changing rooms were always free at lunchtime. Like no one was in there. Mm. And I used to go in there with a girl, and we just used to snog in the boys' toilets. And you know, when you get older, that kind of kissing is always a prelude to further physical activity. You know, you never just do it for kissing. Usually, I mean, yeah, you do, and you don't, I guess. But we would just kiss all lunchtime and be quite happy with that. There was no, it didn't feel like it was a prelude to anything.
0: It was just kissing. That's right. Yeah. I mean, it is great. I do love kissing. Yeah. It's it fun. Yeah, it is fun. I mean, that's one of the things that you have to, um, you know, you can kiss your wife and that's great. I've got to be really careful. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a stage in your teens and twenties, maybe before things always have to be about sex yeah. or sexual intercourse or whatever. Where you do, you know, you can go to a party and you can just kiss someone and it's really nice. Yeah,
1: there's, a, there's something to be said for just that.
0: Yeah. And there is a point, I guess, I don't know
1: if it's the case with everybody, but I, you, you kind of, there's a particular kind of kissing you do early on in a relationship, which, you know, I mean, I don't s- snog my wife in the toilets anymore, you know, like I did with uh, Alison Beard. <laughs> <laughs> but and the, the kissing that you do sort of changes, oh, yeah. God, this is dangerous territory.,
0: oh, you got to be really careful. yeah um I liked in your book as well the description of your sort of weird three way romance <laughs> between your friend Darius
1: oh yes, yes, now that's something I've always wanted to try and convert into a film or it was the- su- it's a chapter that has no bearing on the point the point of the book was to try and kind of relate childhood to adulthood and all the things that I liked as a kid and then ended up being involved in as an adult. But the the summer of 83, which is a chapter in the book, is just all about this French exchange student called Muriel who came over. And it was just the most heady, kind of hormone-busting summer of my life. And I look back, I fell in love so completely with this girl, and she was... Exotic and different, and she smelt amazing and
0: what did she smell of sausages
1: yeah, sausages and baguettes <laughs> <laughs> but she she just beguiled me and and I had this kind of how old were you thirteen right, and I had this sort of you know this there was this sexual tension between us, it wasn't sexual in that respect, but there was a, there was a romantic tension, and then suddenly, at this party, she got off with my friend darius and and it all it all came crashing in and I was heartbroken and I remember when I found out I mean I was sobbing leaning up against a blackberry bush in Gloucester crying my eyes out and I and I stood up and I and one of the blackberries had burst on my back and it looked like I'd been stabbed in the back and I thought that was that was so symbolic of the truth but I couldn't be mad at Darius because he hadn't been around that summer and so it wasn't like he'd kind of known what was going on and then and then sort of whisked her away and she wasn't mine to whisk away anyway but
0: so Man. he wasn't aware that it was a terrible portrayal.
1: No, and it wasn't really. Only in my mind. And then the day she left, we had a snog. And it was, it was such an amazing kiss. And then Darius kind of came over the, the brow of the hill clapping. like, like I remember hearing his, his, his hands going like this. And, uh, and then we walked off with our arms. Me and him walked down the hill with our arms around each other. So he was, it was like, for,
0: for He was happy for you. He wasn't by that time he knew that, yeah.
1: He knew that I had, you know, I, I was very in love with her. Right. And it, it, it was just, I look back on it now as being hazy, you know, long summer nights. And like you do when you think you think of your childhood in a very romantic way. And it's always struck me as a great coming of age story. Just, yeah. Just, uh, did
0: remember, you ever see each other again then?
1: She came back the next year. and then and it, But it wasn't quite the same. We were a bit older and, and it was a rainier summer and it just didn't feel like it did. It was a lightning in a bottle. I remember coming back from a, a party one night with her in the car and she sort of fell asleep on my shoulder and she sort of put her arm around me and, you know, she was just being affectionate. It wasn't... I, I, to me, I, my whole body was just, like, humming. My heart was thumping and I could feel her, her head on my shoulder and I could smell her sort of, like, impulse, whatever she was wearing, her cheap teenage perfume. Dimitary. And I could feel her little spiky, gelled hair digging into my cheek. Uh-huh. And, and I just wanted it to, to stay... I wanted that journey to continue forever, you know. It was so amazing. And uh, and then she went back to France. And we stayed in t- contact for a long time. She, we, we lettered. You remember letters? Yes, I write think letters. so, yes. How are you? I am fine. That's it, yeah. In her little kind of girlish script that uh, right. love hearts over the eyes and stuff. Yeah. And we did
0: stay pen pals for a while. I really related to the intensity of your little romantic flings at that point. I used to really fall in love or what I thought was falling in love. All the time. Yeah. Yeah. And then be absolutely heartbroken. Like I couldn't, I just couldn't imagine how life would continue when when they fell apart. Because unfortunately for me, it ended up being something that took a while to to straighten out. You know what I mean? Oh, really? Right through my 20s, I was getting into relationships where I was immediately like totally in love. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Of course, it was very claustrophobic for the other person. Absolutely.
1: I remember uh, uh, going out with a girl when I was 16 and, and saying, I love you, I love you, and wanting her to say it back, but she wouldn't. Yeah. And I realised why. is because she was emotionally far more mature than I was. But I think when you, when you start to experience that kind of feeling when you're a kid, you just want to experience it all the time because it's so new. And you're, when you start to find other people attractive... It's just so much fun, you know, and then you have relationships that last six weeks and then you go <laughs> and then you have a break and then you yeah. go on to another one.
0: And each one is as intense as the last. And what do you think it is? Like, I often wonder, like, what is it about me that wanted that or needed that? Was it as simple as just feeling that you were in some kind of dramatic movie like situation that these feelings were so intense and so fun for that reason or is it some sort Maybe. of insecurity or I don't know cuz it's not it has nothing to do with sex at that point no. really
1: it's not like i mean when you get to like 15 16 it does but even that is a sort of fumbling it's not like i want this now this is this is what i want now you 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 move on to it inevitably because you kind of you progress to the next stage of your physical relationship but yeah when and you're then, like 13 or so it's yeah. just there's a, It's far more romantic. It's far more grand and sort of, you know, um novelistic. Yeah. I feel like um I enjoyed the pain of it as well. I feel like right. there's something... I remember when I fell in love with this girl at college called Caroline Kaz, and she was a goth, and she was splendid. She was just like... She had, like, hair extensions, and she smelled like patchouli oil, and she was everything I found attractive in a woman at the time as a fellow goth. I remember we stayed up all night and watched the Sisters of Mercy on VHS, their last concert at the Albert Hall. Wow. It was called Wake.
0: You were a goth.
1: And we lay on the sofa together. And I went back to Gloucester the next day, because I was at college in Stratford and Avon. Everything smelt of her. And I put on Marianne by the Sisters of Mercy, which is this incredible dirge. It's a great song. you yeah. calling Marianne. <laughs> it's a brilliant song. It's yeah. very melodramatic and quite funny. But to me, it was just... I put it on and closed my eyes. I just loved the pain of it, you know, because nothing had happened between us, and I felt I felt like the love I had for her was quite unrequited. But I enjoyed it; it was fun, the drama, the totally the drama. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, a joy, extremely interesting.
0: some kind of transposition has taken place. You weren't, like, a mega Star Trek fan. You liked the show.
1: I liked Star Trek, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I watched it, you know, because it was always... It's slightly older skewed, I think, Star Trek. And um, I started watching it when I was about seven or eight. And I liked it because it was science fiction. But it was much more cerebral and thoughtful than... Like, Star Wars was just a kid's adventure, you know? It was fantasy. But, but, yeah, I, I always liked Star Trek, absolutely.
0: Yeah, Star Trek, like the original show, the TV show with Shatner and Leonard Nimoy, there weren't too many kind of... There was a few fist fights. Yeah. But there weren't too many slow sort of fist laser fights. battles. Yeah. No, not at all. And it was always... It was like six o'clock on BBC
1: Two it would be on. Yeah. And it was kind of creepy as well. There was something slightly attractive right. about it because it was a bit weird. But I think Star Wars gripped me because I was exactly the right age for it yeah. I was seven.
0: Lasers, space guns, spaceships, robots. Yeah, all that. Perfect. (laughs) There's definitely a a motif in the book about you as this kind of outsider pop culture fan. And then suddenly you transition into being at the very core of it. Like one of the figureheads of this (laughs) this group of, of nerds, as it were. Yeah. You're like now you're in the actual movies that they're all freaking out about. Yeah, it's very strange. And there are several moments of curious circularity that you talk about in the book. Yeah, And one of them is that Star Trek thing. Yeah, that's still peculiar in a way.
1: I mean, not least, you know, recently getting to write one, getting to co-write one, which was, it's like someone handing you the keys to a really, really expensive car, and you really want to take it around the track, but you don't want to dent it and stuff. There's this odd responsibility that it came with. But it was really, really an amazing experience, you know, particularly once we started shooting because it... The, the the writing process prior to that was very pressurised, we didn't have much time, they'd had a script, they threw it out, and they just gave us a blank page, and they would already were kind of in pre-production, so it was a really stressful time, and Trying to figure out what Justin, the director, wanted because he wasn't—he wasn't a very verbal communicator. He had—he's a brilliant, brilliant director and a, a lovely guy. But at first, I was like, "What the fuck does this guy want?" You know, I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. But eventually, we had enough of a script to start shooting. And then once we were shooting, Doug Jung and I, who was the other writer, we'd every night we'd we'd write the next day's work, finesse it, and then go in, and it was great fun.
0: I just love the idea of you as a as a kid watching this show and being intrigued by the character of Spock. (laughs) And then fast forward a few years and you're opposite Spock. Yeah. (laughs) And it is actually Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. That's
1: weird. That was very odd. And the experience of acting with a character that you know, not an actor. I mean, I've had that lots of times and I've acted with an actor I've seen many times and enjoyed, but when you're actually talking to a character that you've, you known for your life, like when I had to say things to Spock in the first Star Trek movie, when Leonard Nimoy was in full Spock mode, being Spock and had to interact, not with Leonard Nimoy, but with Spock, that was very odd. And during those nights at the, we were shooting at the, there was a Budweiser factory in LA in the Valley. And, uh, That was that big ice set. Yeah, all all the interior of the engine room was there as well because I think J.J. Abrams wanted wanted it to look like the sort of Titanic. So it was all this kind of like, you know, valves and tanks and pipes and stuff. And sitting, me and Chris Pine and Leonard were sharing a trailer because it was close to the set and sort of sitting in there. And Leonard fell asleep. And uh, Chris and I were just sort of <laughs> looking at each other. And, and Spock was just sat in an armchair snoring. It was so strange. So, so surreal. So he licked his ears. Just nibbled the top of the points. <laughs> and then you get used to it. And then, and then suddenly it becomes quite ordinary. And uh, I, mean, I always try and maintain a sense of wonder and stay in touch with young me so it never gets boring, you know. Yeah. I don't think it ever will, but...
0: And you had another moment like that with Carrie Fisher... Yeah. You were with Shaun of the Dead at Comic-Con? Oh, at Comic-Con. Yeah, and then I had another...
1: I had a moment with her at Comic-Con when I literally lined up like a fan to meet her, you know, because she was my first crush. I guess the first public figure that I felt romantic love for, you know, or character. And I was very young, so I met her and, and told her that I'd kissed her picture when I was a kid for bedtime and then when I was on the set of The Force Awakens as an actor you know and then by that time we'd kind of had a passing relationship on Twitter and then met and we walked around the set of The Resistance Base together like arm in arm then we stopped and we were talking and I was looking into her eyes and they were the same eyes obviously that had utterly enchanted me as a kid and it was such a bizarre feeling for them to be looking back at me and talking to me and I said to her you know I've always been in love with you don't you and she grabbed my hand and looked at my wedding ring and said, Fuck you. <laughs> and walked off. And uh, it was just magical. Yeah, you know? yeah. It really, really was magical. And I. I
0: she seems like quite an amazing person.
1: Yeah. You. She was extraordinary. And I, I said to her at the time, I said, because she had quite a tough day, her first day on set, I was around at that time. And I said, It's because this film, this story has been in your life since you were 19. And it has affected your life in so many ways, for better and for worse, you know, in the best and worst ways. For her and, I guess, Mark Hamill, you know. Harrison Ford didn't seem that bothered, you
0: know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) He he was very, very cool about it. But I think for Mark and Carrie... And I think also because Harrison Ford had a huge career away from Star Wars. But for Mark and Carrie, you know, they were sort of defined by, you know. Yeah,
0: I heard you talking somewhere about... The strange journey that that franchise has been on and and where we've ended up with a weird sort of cadre of toxic fanboy people yeah, who are almost like the alt-writers. Yes. You know what I mean? And they just go after the people who are now working on the new Star Wars movies if they don't like the female characters or if they think it's too PC or whatever and they're kind of all furious because they just go, these are... Look at this new character. He's called Bingo Bonjo. That's not a real Star Wars character. That's not. That's just made up. It's fake, fake. It's it's almost like they're using that Trump language of fake totally. news, that sort of thing. It's just fake. And they can't see, they don't seem to have any perspective on how crazy it is. Because
1: it's but like, it's weird. I, I feel, and I said, I think I spoke about it recently because I spoke about feeling guilty about... Going on and on about the Jar Jar Binks character in the in the prequels because the actor who played Jar Jar Binks, that he took it really hard. Not me personally, but all of the kind of you know the that negativity. level of cynicism. Yeah, he had yeah. depression about it, and and I felt bad because obviously you feel like you're insulting a you know a kind of rubbery guy with rabbit. big ears. Yeah. yeah, you don't think about the person. <laughs> what did
0: you call him? a rabbit? Uh,
1: uh, Like he was like a sort of camp Jamaican rabbit yeah. character. <laughs> it feels like. That's what you're complaining about, not a human being who's, who's you know, doing a character. Yeah. But, and I was very responsible at the time because when Spaced came out, that was about the same time as, as The Phantom Menace came out and I used Spaced as my platform for my dismay at that film. And then recently when I was sort of saying about, oh, for fuck's sake, it's just a film because they bullied one of the actors from the last film who played the part of Rose, and they bullied her off social media and when I was sort of saying, oh, for fuck's sake, it's just a film, I think a lot of people were like, well, Heather, you're a hypocrite, you know, because I'd complain
0: so bitterly about the prequels. And I did, really. But it was clear that it wasn't, you know, it's just that's what nerdy friends do. They sort of bitch about these things. But you don't then translate that into real-life enmity and, and uh, Absolutely. And the weird thing was
1: is that the, there was an odd thing with the last film... The Last Jedi in that the people that didn't like it were sort of being gaslighted by the people that did like it who were just dismissing their complaints about the film as being fanboy butthurt kind of... Right. Do you know what I mean? When, and yet the whole thing is just eating itself in a hideous kind of cultural soup.
0: Yeah. It's, it's a weird, shame
1: because it is just a film. It's supposed to be fun. I know, I know. Now, I remember reading a book about it at university by Jean about called America... And it predicted all of this, the, you know, our kind of infantilization and, and right. the fact that the, the adult population would become obsessed with what is essentially youth cultural stuff. And it would drag us away from yeah. adult life because we're far less grown up than our forebears, aren't we? I mean, you look at I look at my dad when he was nearly 50 and he was much older than me. Now, he wasn't doing
0: things like, no, we are silly boy men. We are in a way. And you and I, we were on the vanguard. I know, we're kind of partly responsible (laughs) for it. But do you ever do any soul-searching about that? Do you ever sort of think, God, I really am a silly boy, man? I certainly feel like every now and again, especially with being a parent, I think I'm not fit to be a parent. (laughs) I do and
1: I don't. I do. I feel like I'm not as much... I think I'm characterised as being more of a silly boy man than I actually am, really. Uh, And I definitely was. But I'm, I'm sort of less so now, I think.
0: We're halfway through the podcast I think it's going really great The conversation's flowing like it would Between a geezer and his mate Alright mate Hello geezer, I'm pleased to see you There's so much chemistry It's like a science lab of talking I'm interested in what you said Thank you There's fun chat and there's deep chat It's like Chris Evans is meeting Stephen Hawking
1: the other moment of circularity, yeah, is the whole thing of ending up working with Spielberg, right? Because that put me in the room on the day of the story, the Doodle Story, the Doodle Story, which Joe has not finished, and I am not going to complete it for you. What? I? I mean, it's got. A, it's a Christmas
0: tradition now. Surely each increment of that story. I was thinking about whether I was going <laughs> to ask you about it. I was thinking maybe I can steal a much, but then I was thinking uh, Cornballs is going to be so angry if I get it out of Simon. You know. It's going to be such a moment of crushing (laughs) (laughs) anticlimax
1: When eventually the punchline comes in 2022, (laughs) the Christmas podcast. It was actually, Nick wasn't there. I remember, I I think when Joe told the story on the podcast, he said Nick Frost was there. He wasn't. Mm -hmm. It was just me, Edgar and Joe and Steven Spielberg.
0: Oh, okay. Tom
1: came into the room.
0: Yeah, because he had uh, Lord of the Rings man...
1: Jackson. No, he wasn't there Peter either. Jackson wasn't no, there. No, no, no. Peter was in a, a New Zealand and he would sort of come in via satellite yeah, because he was sort of co-directing and um, he would be wheeled in like a head in a jar on a computer yeah. sometimes. Uh, Edgar and Joe were sort of co-writing it.
0: For listeners who haven't heard all the Christmas episodes with Joe, this is a story that Joe sort of dangled in front of me. Or rather, he told me ages ago, and it was sort of a mildly amusing anecdote yeah. about having been in the room with Spielberg and Tom Cruise had come in and Joe was doodling something on a pad and Tom Cruise came over and saw what he was doodling. And so I just wanted him to tell the story and Joe clammed up and he was like, oh, no, I can't. and It just made me so angry. I just thought, oh, fuck off.
1: Well, you know what it was is because I think Joe was trying to be discreet and not sound like he was being snarky about Tom. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't
0: reflect badly on No,
1: not at all, not TC. at all. The story doesn't either. And it was, it, you know, and I think the thing is as well is that, well, I'd worked with him before and he'd met Edgar, but he'd never met Joe. And he's very sort of, he he's always keen to include people that... This is Tom. Tom Cruise. Cruise yeah, he'll, he'll like, he'll zero in on the person he doesn't know just to make them feel okay because he, he knows what it's like. He has empathy in terms of, wow, Tom Cruise has just walked into the room. He's very aware of himself in that way. And so he kind of like, you know, was sort of including Joe and talking to Joe and... uh and Joe probably was quite grateful for that because it was quite polite. So I think telling the story of right of Tom doodling suddenly he might he, he, I
0: think he probably panicked. Yeah,
1: but then I'm surprised he didn't tell you off, Mike. That's just
0: mean. No, he did tell me off, Mike. <laughs> oh, okay, he right. did. I I know the story. That's the thing. And it's now it's become so. So listeners, if you if you haven't heard the Christmas <laughs> podcast, now for the last two or maybe even three years, he's been feeding me little bits of the doodle story. <laughs> And I know, the thing is that I know that when you get to the end of it, as Simon says, it's not going to be... It's not a great... Punchline. It's not going to be the best story. It's just you ever a moment heard. of awkwardness. It's a nice little insight, I suppose. Exactly. It, it presents a human side to him, which most people don't see. And I, I kind of... Uh... So did you? Did you? What was it like for you? Did you sort of go, oh, this is strange, when you first met him? Yeah,
1: I met him on set. Like, and I'd literally gone over to LA to do a couple of scenes, and I'd got. i been in this hotel room in Beverly Hills for like five days, waiting to be told what to do. I wasn't in a great place. What like, year was this? It's
0: 2006.
1: Yeah. And uh, I was a bit stir crazy. So
0: you're like Martin room. Sheen in the hotel Oh, room my God, so much. Waiting to go Exactly. Yeah.
1: I was drinking heavily and I, I kind mirrors. of was, Beverly Hills is like a wilderness. You walk out into the street and it's like there's no... You can't walk anywhere.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I had no transport. I had no idea what LA was like. And eventually I got the call to go in and I was really, really punchy. And uh, Tom walked on set with Bing Rames and was like, oh, hey, here we go. Action. (laughs) It's this massive monologue. But he was very, very good and very, very understanding. And um, and then over time, obviously over the last 12 years, I've got to know him a lot better. And he's quite content for people just to speculate. I've seen like, there's been great blooper reels from the Mission films, which never end up on the DVD because I think he's quite keen to just preserve his mystique a little bit. Yeah. Because it seems to, at least for the most part, do well for him because it maintains his sort of movie star status and
0: i suppose now with all the speculation about his involvement with scientology yeah 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 there's no point in trying to firefight absolutely because if he starts i mean the questions will never stop
1: i know because although I, I remember chris McQuarrie saying that the first time brian singer met uh, on on valkyrie uh tom had said to him you can ask me anything you want You know, and Brian had fired off a load of inappropriate questions at him, which he answered. I've never spoken about it with him. You know, I'm kind of intrigued. I think I probably could ask him, but I don't want to sound like I'm taking advantage of my privileged access to him. Yeah. You know, because we work together and then it's like, oh, great, I'm in a position to get to the bottom of this stuff.
0: Also, it would kind of remind that person that, that's what you're thinking Exactly, about. yeah, yeah, yeah. You sort of want to get that. And it's not always,
1: you know, because yeah. the person that you see every day isn't the kind of person you see in the pages of the slag mags, you know. It's, yeah, yeah. It's just the guy you work with, albeit him.
0: Yeah. Did you ever watch Going Clear?
1: I didn't. And you know why I didn't? Because I didn't... Oh you man. didn't want to... I didn't want to sort of like... think about it. Yeah, that's <laughs> terrible, isn't it? No, I know what you mean. my head I in the sand a little bit, I think. It is intriguing. It, it's funny in LA because there's like... You know, there's, like, a Scientology channel now and stuff. And, right, yeah. And there's buildings all around L.A. for it. And um, But then I'm an atheist, so all religion seems
0: a bit nuts to me,
1: you know. Mm. Uh, whether it's a new religion or an old religion, all dogma is gobbledygook and,
0: you know. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I, I think the least interesting aspect of Scientology is the so-called religious aspect of it and all the... Which it is the can't be... and no, the aliens and all that. They don't believe that, I, 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 No, most of them, as far as I can tell... You know, Scientology is a set of systems and it's almost like a business ideology. Yeah, I think it's more of a business and, thing. And I it? think people are worried about just the way they conduct business and the yeah. way they harass certain people who don't agree with them or whatever. Yeah, that all seems very... Uh, yeah. So, ideology. but it is weird. I've met a few Scientologists. Like, I met Beck um, years ago. Yeah, but he's like a, he was born one, right? He's like his parents. Uh, was he? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And I was so... Keen to ask him, but obviously I don't know him at all. All I could think was, I really like your music. Yeah, you're great. So you don't really want well, to. Well, that's get the into thing it. with Tom is yeah. that he's very charismatic
1: and utterly um, lovely. You know, really, really sort of generous and personable, and mm. it's hard to equate that. With-
0: also, you never know what level of. I don't mean literally, like, theta level or whatever. Part, you know, <laughs> but you don't know how immersed they are in that. Maybe they're, you know, it's like you meet some Christians and they kind of cherry-pick what aspects of Christianity are want to their lives. Yeah, know? yeah, they're yeah. Like, yeah, I'm on board with that bit, but not so much that bit. Yeah, yeah. I don't see why it should be any different with Scientology, per se. Man, I watched the... Last mission impossible film the other day, holy shit was so fun it's is fun isn't I it? mean they 're really fun films it 's like those yeah. the born films and the mission impossible films, as far as i 'm concerned, yeah, are some of the most enjoyable bits of escapist fun what well, I had think at the cinema they 're so solid yeah
1: and, and, and there's something to be said for his um tom 's Insistence on doing everything practically. Do you
0: really? So, like, when he's yeah. running across the rooftops, there doing his that funny was robot nine, run.
1: nine weeks after he broke his ankle. That that bit when he's running across the top of the bridge. Right. I mean, he smashed his ankle. They said he wouldn't walk for three months, and and uh, and wouldn't possibly ever sprint again. They said, and like within nine weeks, he was back on it. Um, but yeah, and I, I what. I my theory is, when we did the the fourth one, when he hung off the the berge in Dubai, mm-hmm. and Brad Bird who directed that shot that so beautifully, that the audience, when when you're with an audience watching that movie, you would sense the vertigo they'd experienced when the shot kind of is a big IMAX shot and it drifted out of the window, looking down, Ethan Hunt's looking down, and there was a physical reaction in the audience that felt really authentic and kind of oh that's like being on a ride or something. They're actually having a physical reaction to it. And I think it came from the idea that if the audience are aware that something is real and not CG or VFX, you know, we had days on set when there was a quiet sort of dread because we knew things were going to happen that were very, very dangerous. But he does it all. And and when you watch it, he did 106 parachute jumps from 26,000 feet to get those three minutes of footage for that movie. And it took three weeks. But when you're watching it, and you know that it's actually happening, there is a degree of tension you just don't get from artificiality. Yeah. And that's what's really sort of powered these movies in the last sort of three, I think.
0: And, of course, one of the people who really went to town with what you could do with CG and created hugely overcomplicated sort of tableau scenes was uh, George Lucas when he started doing the remakes. Have you ever bumped into George Lucas? I have. I met him at
1: the um, the premiere of The Revenge of the Sith, which is the third prequel. Yeah. And I was still going back each time, even though I'd been disappointed with the previous two. And I think I was slightly less disappointed with the third one. But I met him at the premiere, and, um, and I sort of went to say hello to him, and he turned around, and, and I saw the weariness in his eyes. Like, Oh, here's another 30-something fanboy who's going to tell me how much I changed his life. And he was talking to Ron Howard, and I think Ron Howard had seen Shaun of the Dead because he immediately went, oh, hey, uh, Shaun of the Dead, and shook my hand. And George Lucas immediately changed his demeanour because it's like, okay, he's involved in filmmaking, and was actually quite sort of candid with me. And um, I don't think he knew I was such an avid decrier of his last three films, but he said, I'll give you some advice. Don't be making the same film that you made 30 years ago, 30 years from now or something. And um, it was an interesting... And I must admit, watching the last Star Wars film, the overriding feeling I got when I came out was, I missed George Lucas. For all the complaining that I'd done about him in the prequels, there was something amazing about his imagination. And I think he's a real first adopter. He saw CG as this way of realising his own imagination, not realising that it might actually end up looking a bit, you know, flat and empty, that was not his intention, and I don't think he was being lazy by using too much CG. He just no, no. To
0: it was it was a desire just to fill every single inch with yeah, something with that stuff. had been thought about. <laughs> yeah, he he just was. There was too much love.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think also back in the day when he was making the first films there was a Gary Kurtz and Alan Ladd Jr. There were these producers that were there to kind of rein in his incredible sort of miasmic imagination, which could very easily overflow into confusion. And I think there were people there just keeping it nice and restrained. And And those first three films were the product of real collaboration. And then with the prequels, it was like, do what you want. And without someone to steer him in the right direction, it did overflow into sort of slightly muddled kind of less elegance. And um, But I do feel like, his voice is missing from the current ones. Controversial. I've got a present for you, by the way. Oh man. Let me go and get it with your thoughts. You've got it. I know you've got it, but it's vinyl, so it's something that you can always do.
0: You can always keep. Okay. Uh, this picture of the oh, wolf. I don't have that on vinyl. Wow.
1: I thought you would like.
0: Hey, thanks, man. I thought. That's great. Look at that picture of him as well. I know, isn't he beautiful? Prokofiev. Yes, he narrates this. All is quiet. All is quiet. Except <laughs> the <Simple> little birds. <laughs> Oh, that's really thoughtful. Thanks, man. No, not at all. That's so kind of you.
1: Vinyl seems to be having this huge resurgence as well.
0: Yeah, my son's well into it. Really? Although he just mainly listens to footwork, Chicago footwork. Do you know what that is? No. It's a sort of, a kind of jungle hybrid. What? I don't even know. I haven't even heard of that. Yeah, it's it's got sort of TV and film samples in it and stuff, and it's quite minimal and... Have you sort of um, enjoyed educating your children uh, when it comes to music? Yeah. I mean, well, well, I I only got so much joy because at a certain point they find their own enthusiasms and off they go. But, yeah, there was one period where my eldest son did actually start going through all my CDs and picking stuff out and I was handing him stuff and saying, check this out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, you know, magazine you'll like there. Yeah. And... uh, Here's some pavement. They're pretty good. Uh, this is a good one to start with. You
1: try and do it without being too, like, you don't want to prescribe yeah, and sound exactly. like you're being, you're telling them what to do. With Tilly in the school run in the morning, like, I'll put a track on and she'll put a track on. And it's great when she likes something, you know, I like played a once in a lifetime by yeah. talking heads and she's like, oh, this is really good. And you just feel so proud. And so, yeah, and so being in the car with Tilly and starting to kind of, you know, give her music felt like a sort of legacy thing, you know. Mm. And for her like the other day we were driving and she went, Oh, can I listen to Hands of Love? I was like, Yeah, you can. Yeah. She felt so proud.
0: Oh, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> Has she seen a lot of stuff that you've been in? Does she, she like comedy stuff? She does. She's funny about stuff though. Like she's not particularly she
1: gets what I do for a living and, you know, she's been on every film set and and she's met everybody and and I because 'cause it's been commonplace for her since she was small. She's not that impressed by it. Like, she's seen Hot Fuzz, and as I mentioned to you earlier, she saw it because she'd seen your death, and I thought, well, that's the worst. So she saw it
0: on YouTube or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Her friend said, look at this.
1: It's Adam Buxton dying by by the head.
0: (laughs) You Um, hate Adam Buxton, right? (laughs) Well, you're going to love this. (laughs) Hi,
1: hi. And then, so we watched Hot Fuzz. We watched The World's End because it's fairly bloodless. Mm. Uh, I haven't shown a Shaun of the Dead just because
0: it's a little gory. My son loved Spaced. Oh, really? Yeah. So I, I showed him that at a certain point And he really, he, he demolished that. My daughter hasn't seen those yet. I think it, you need to get some of the references, I think. So I'm going to wait yeah, a little bit. I suppose,
1: yeah. I suppose that's important for, to get the full experience. Yeah. Have you shown them
0: Adam and Joe? Uh, the boys, yeah, they've seen some of it. But she hasn't seen, my daughter, who's 10, she hasn't seen any of it yet. Yeah ah it's a bit of a weird one that needs a lot of cherry picking there's quite a lot of dross in there also they're very sweary like the toy movies was just really we were so silly and just swore all the time because that's what you do when you and that
1: was when we were that was at the very beginning of kind of being allowed to swear on tv as much as we are today yeah when we were on space, we were allowed one fucking episode Uh uh-huh in the first series and two in the second and that was like a big deal and I remember them saying, well, you can have three shits. <laughs> if you can have a fuck, you've got to take out three shits. You know, it was like, a, that's the rule in our house. <laughs> it was like a kind of a point system. Yeah. And now you just watch, you know, anything ever since Kitchen Nightmares. I mean, this Gordon Ramsay. Right. It's It's been devalued.
0: Yeah, you can say shit, I think, anytime you want now.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely.
0: Breakfast, TV, whatever. It's not a problem. <clears throat> My daughter is... Obsessed by Ready Player One. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> She's read the book. Yeah. Ten times. Wow. She listens to the audio book every night. That's so funny because it's not about her era, is it? I no. mean it's, it's written by a guy who grew up with all the stuff he mentions. Yeah, yeah. Is... I think it's got a good, strong female protagonist. Yes, Artemis. Yeah, and she loves mythology and stuff. She just loved the fact that she was called Artemis, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She obviously saw the film when it came out and loved it, absolutely yeah. loved it. You played Ogden Morrow. That's right, yeah. Who is the kind of Steve Wozniak to... Um, yeah, it's as
1: if, in the Apple uh, universe, as if Wozniak had been the face of Apple and not Steve Jobs, do you know what I mean? Right. So, So Ogden Morrow was the slightly more socially adept one who was able to kind of take it to the masses and do the presentations, and, and Mark Rylance's character, James Halliday, was the awkward sort of tech... Wizard, yeah, but yeah, that was really, really good fun doing that. It would have been odd because I'd got the book; I'd been given the book when it came out because they mentioned Spaced in the book. There's a moment when he says M and H have an evening watching Spaced, which is a, a nice sort of nod. And then, so when the film came around and I got the call to do it, it felt like another one of those moments of like, oh, you yeah, have to do this, you know. And also because it's Steven Spielberg.
0: Have you watched that big Spielberg documentary? Yeah, it's That's great. good, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's amazing, and I've had a great time again. In the same way with we were talking about about music, I've done the same thing with films with Tilly, is is sit and take her through all the kind of films that she wouldn't see if she didn't have a movie fan as a dad, which, of course, meant a lot of those Amblin movies and the stuff that Spielberg produced and also not just, you know, E.T. and the films he directed, but she became very obsessed with Jaws. Like, she really wanted to see Jaws. Yeah. And I couldn't allow that because she was only seven, but she kept going on about it. So And I happened to be shooting the movie at the time, so I said, come to work and you can ask Mr. Spielberg, and if he says you can watch it, then I'll stand by that. And so she did, and he said no. <laughs> and she took it, she was like, okay, fair enough. But then the minute she turned eight, she was like, can I watch it now?
0: Did he say how old he thought she he did. should be? He,
1: he said she should be 12. Right. And he asked her her age. And the other night, because she's nine now, I said, should we watch it? And she was like, no. <laughs> so she's a bit nervous about it. It's
0: funny how it resonates through the generations. It's still yeah. this benchmark for... Um, okay, am I old enough to watch something scary?
1: And it's not exactly, it's not particularly gory either. There's a couple of moments in there, but it's purely the tension and the the scene setting that he does so well, you know, the kind Mm. of the awful promise of violence, which just goes throughout that movie. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I'm excited, though, To show them uh, Big Train. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you
1: wrote for that, didn't you? You wrote Hall and Oates, didn't you? Oh,
0: yeah, that's right. Me and Joe, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, wrote it. We sketched out an idea for Graham and Arthur. I think the idea alone of Hall and Oates helping out on a council estate was... Yeah,
0: that was Joe's. (laughs) And then the one I had was uh, wanking in the office. Oh, my
1: God, that's like
0: everybody's favourite. For people who haven't seen the sketch. Oh, yes. The premise is someone sort of saying, look, guys, I really think that we should cut out the wanking in the office (laughs) because it's becoming really a problem. Yeah,
1: it's essentially... A debate about not being able to smoke in the office but it's wanking yeah you know what i have a massive regret about that sketch because mark heap says i think if you did a poll in the building there would be you know and i should have said i wish i could do my poll in the building <laughs> and it's one of my biggest regrets that i never got to i never picked up on that feed line because it was such a fa- and it was just about smoking you know yeah Uh, uh, But then uh, Kevin came up with the, you know, he sprang the two bits of paper stuck together on us and stuff. And uh, and it ends with some guy behind a rubber plant just... Feverishly beating himself, <laughs> and Mark saying, "Did you not hear a word I said?"
0: <laughs> <laughs> so many wonderful things in that show. Oh my god, the firemen as well. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. The show jumpers who want to be firemen.
0: The show jumpers who want to be firemen, and they're like children, and yeah. they're sort of going and admiring. And the first show jumper sketch was in the the pilot that was directed by Chris Morris. Yeah,
1: with Prince. Right. And the, um, oh no, that was jockeys. Jockeys. Yeah, yeah, and like wild jockeys. Yeah there was a sense on that that was 98 we shot that 20 years ago Jesus Christ it was 20 years ago that it came out I think and the excitement of being involved in that show Big Train was so much like this is what I want to see you know this felt like we were because I've been a big fan of the day to day as I'm sure you were Yeah. and of course working with Chris and meeting Steve Coogan around that time as well it felt like wow we're with that group of comedians now we're involved in that movement that you know I've been such a fan of and, yeah, shooting those scenes, it was just so, so exciting. Less so with the second series, because it felt like it was a little after the fact, I think.
0: Yeah. Also, Graham wasn't writing for it at that point. Gra-
1: and also, Graham directed the first season. Ah, yeah. And, and he, his direction... It's very important with comedy, I think, to have somebody funny behind the camera as well. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, Graham's comedic sensibility permeated his directorial choices in it, and, and it added so much more to it, whereas we didn't have someone who was overtly comic directing the second series.
0: Right. But- I remember that... Um- because me and Joe had um, put forward some ideas for it. I think we ended up seeing the pilot. Or maybe we saw the pilot and then contributed ideas for the series. Either way, we saw this pilot before it had been out. Yeah. And it was so exciting. Yeah. It was very exciting that Graham had contacted us anyway because right. um, we'd just done our, the Adam and Joe show and nothing else. And we, you know, there was no social media. There was no, we didn't have any sense of whether anyone was watching it or not. And then we got this email out of the blue from Graham saying, oh, I really like your show. And we are like, holy shit. Yeah. And then we saw this pilot directed by Chris Morris. And you know, like you, we loved all this. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember you doing that sketch where you're down an alley. Maybe it was even the, the first sketch. And it's, um, a standoff between this armed robber oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. a load of policemen.
1: Don't fire the gun. <laughs>
0: Don't fire the gun, and you're like, what? And you keep on shooting. <laughs>
1: fire the gun, yeah. <laughs> I was really nervous doing that, mainly because of Chris, because Chris was so enigmatic, or, or it seemed, he's actually lovely, but, you, you know, meeting him was very nerve-wracking. Yeah. And I remember him directing me during that sketch, and I didn't feel like I was getting it right, and it was, uh, it was a bit arduous. I was thinking the other day, when, when you were going to come over, I suddenly remembered a thing that you did and I think it must have been around about the same time, maybe a bit like, like late 90s, definitely, but it, you, you you took an episode of The Priory. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you remember that show with Zoe Ball and Jamie, Jamie Thiexton? And, and you did a commentary on it. And yes. this is even... Uh, as Ken Corder. Ken Corder. It. And it was... Because we had it on VHS at our place, me and Nick Frost and Smiley. Yeah. We had a copy. and it, So it was like a DVD commentary. It wasn't even on a DVD. It was before you could put things on DVD. <laughs> but it was such a funny idea that... that
0: Yes, it was, it was at the height of DVD commentaries. when, And I used to watch all the, I used oh, to, yeah. to all the commentaries. Yeah, me, Ed, every, me and Egg
1: used to go to New York to buy DVDs that had commentaries wow Whoa,
0: them. yeah. I mean, I wasted a fuck of a lot of time just yeah. listening to commentaries for really dog shit films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with people talking about, oh, well, this film, what I did was, it's like, who cares? I know. But. The ones for me were the Ridley Scott ones, which were really like a masterclass, yeah, and, and so interesting. So many great anecdotes, and he's such a good talker. I loved those ones.
1: My favorite was Kurt Russell and John Carpenter on, on the Thing. Oh yeah, talking, and you can hear the ice in their whiskey clinking uh-huh. as they're talking. And and it's funny how we've sort of graduated beyond that now. It's like, well, now I don't really care. And yeah, with I mean, my interpretation is what I want. I don't want to hear the director yeah. dismiss ideas I've had about the film because. Yeah, people don't really do commentaries. No, not sure? really. You just did that for shits and giggles, right? Yeah, <laughs> I did it because I'm. I, I had too much time on my. But own. I just—I remember thinking at the time, "Fuck, man, that it took so much kind of technical wherewithal to do it, and then reproduce it, and then distribute it." <laughs> I just remember being so impressed by
0: that. I just remember thinking, <laughs> "Oh man, I don't know. I've got mixed feelings about it because it was such a colossal waste of time. It was fun, no, it
1: wasn't? Because everybody loved it. It I was
0: it? all our friend circle yeah. who you gave it to. I
1: don't know. I, I, just, I just remember thinking the the sort of the industry involved in it was
0: just. I mean, it really was a grotesquely overextended joke <laughs> because I did the whole. I did commentary for the whole thing. it was, I know, like, but an it was hour like long or something. That so many big
1: train sketches were like. They'd start funny and then they'd stop being funny and then they'd start being funny <laughs> right. again. And the that's Stuart exact- Lee School of exactly, Comedy, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: But I did. I spent a while doing it. Ken pretending that he directed it <laughs> really, he was yeah. taking it very, very seriously. And he's like, "Well, uh, in this in this scene, Jamie was interviewing Frankie Muniz, Frank, Frankie Muniz from Malcolm in the Middle." And what we wanted to get out of Frankie was a sense of that ennui that he must have felt playing the Marking character <laughs> and all this kind of bullshit. You know?
1: It was like a little comedy gem that existed in a tiny microcosmic universe. Yes.
0: I'm going to fire at you uh, something, because you've done so much. It's crazy, man. You, you, you work hard. Mm. And I was just going to fire some things at you, and I want you to, uh, I'm just going to use you as, anecdote, <laughs> as an anecdote machine. Okay. Okay? Yeah. I'm going to, like an anecdote slot machine. Right. <laughs> I'm, just going, I'm just going to pull the um, Put a noise of And then uh, <laughs> you've got to spit out a fun anecdote. Okay, here we go. Ching. <laughs> bing, 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 band of brothers, 2001.
1: Oh, man. Who wasn't on that show? That was, looking back on that now, I mean, I think they just hired every young actor of a certain age that was working in the UK. They were shooting in Hatfield, like literally 10 minutes from where we are now. But everybody, like Tom Hardy and Michael Fassbender, I remember me and Michael Fassbender were loading an aeroplane with parachutes in the deep, deep background of a shot and spent the entire thing complaining that we were just glorified extras. <laughs> <laughs> but having a lot of fun doing it, I think, you know, being fairly um, irreverent. But it was, a, yeah, it was an amazing thing to be part of, just because it was so huge. And we, we, When we were shooting the uh, the Eve of D-Day, there was quite a moment when we were on the runway, surrounded by hundreds and hundreds of soldiers, of, of extras, um, and, and, the, and the actors in the movie, and knowing that if this was the actual event, then maybe 75% of the men on that field would be dead tomorrow, which was uh, pretty, you know extraordinary um feeling Mm. because it was so real we were all in our gear and it was you know the planes
0: were there and everything and And it's so brilliantly conveyed that sense of of just dread and inevitability yeah yeah, my dad who was in the second world war he was d-day plus three as an officer and um he watched that show and he was very impressed by it. Was he? Yeah, especially Bastogne. Yes. Um, yes,
1: that's uh, a lot of people love that episode.
0: He went through after the battle at Bastogne, which is when in this horrible icy winter, and, yeah, they, and yeah. they were just sort of trapped there for several weeks, these soldiers fighting. And the way and my dad said, yes, the way that the tree trunks exploded and split yeah, yeah, when yeah. they were hit by artillery was exactly the way he remembered it. And yeah. Uh, not that he was in that battle, but... The, yeah, he would have seen the, the aftermath, aftermath of it, sure. 24-Hour Party People, 2002.
1: I was playing the role of a journalist, possibly Paul Morley, actually. We never quite named him, but we thought that might be who it was, at the funeral of Ian Curtis. Directed Anna, by Michael Winterbottom. Directed by Michael Winterbottom.
0: Is that the first time you'd worked with him?
1: It was, and the last. And, uh, but the first time I worked with Sean Harris, the actor, right. who uh, has recently been the bad guy in Mission Impossible. Yeah, brilliant bad guy. Brilliant bad guy. And he was playing Ian Curtis. And Sean's not a method actor particularly. He, is, he takes his work very, very seriously and is known for being quite serious. He's actually a lot of fun. He's very silly. If you tease him out of his actor's shell, he's an absolute riot to be around. But that day he was in that coffin all day long, oh. like just a dead body. And I never saw him move. Yeah, that, and that was with Steve Coogan, who was uh, playing the lead role of... Tony Wilson. Tony Wilson. And I think it was one of my first movies as well. I love that film. Yeah, it's a great film. There was a great... I mean, they were living that film. You could tell they were all of them sort of like... They were so inhabiting those characters that like, the band were misbehaving and... They the were band just playing all, Happy
0: Mondays yeah they yeah. were getting
1: into trouble that's the first time I went with Paddy Considine as well because he was right. playing Rob Gretton and Paddy he seemed real serious of course Paddy's not serious at all he's a, he's a really funny guy but they were just in character you know and uh, I, I remember feeling quite sort of uh, wet behind the ears on that shoot
0: yeah I haven't seen Paddy Considine for a while. Last time I saw him, he was playing with his band. Yeah. Riding the low. Riding the low, yeah. But I do remember him being, he was sort of nutty on Hot Fuzz, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, oh, he was so naughty on Hot Fuzz. Him <laughs> and Rafe, they were just, they just inhabited those. Again, you know, not that Paddy's an, a method actor at all, but I think those two characters are so irreverent. And Paddy's hilarious. Like, he'll go, he'll act like an absolute nutcase right up until action. And sometimes, if you're trying to get in the moment for a shot, it's not entirely conducive. (laughs) And Edgar, I remember, used to get quite sort of uh, frustrated at them because they would be acting like kids.
0: I remember feeling sorry for Edgar because there was so much fun going on around him, but he had to kind of keep it together.
1: Yes, but also Edgar doesn't, Edgar stops kind of having fun on set, like he, because he's very concentrated. And he becomes a different person when he directs. He's sort of like, you know, because he feels everything so much and he's very much in the moment. And occasionally when things are going well and we're not behind time, which is very rare because he shoots a lot of stuff, he'll relax. But, yeah, Edgar's much more serious on set. than Mm. I think some actors who work with him who don't know him uh, are worried
0: that he's not happy with them, but he's not. He's just in the moment. Mm. I mean, I never got any bad vibes off him or anything. He was lovely. But uh, I I just remember thinking, oh, I wouldn't want to be a director. (laughs) No. Have you directed stuff? No, I'm going to though. Right. I'm looking forward to it. I I, I, I would. I
1: do want to be a director, and I do want to to enjoy the process more. Edgar always seems to not enjoy it. I'm sure that's not true. You know, because he loves eats, breathes, sleeps film. But mm. I'm looking forward to living with something for a little bit longer and and spending time. I'm developing a script with the writer, and um, I can't wait to just be behind the camera and not do any acting. You know, just look at the monitor and get the shots right, and that really appeals to me.
0: Mm. I remember one evening after Hot Fuzz when we all went out, and I think uh, Nick Frost was there, and Paddy Considine was there, being pretty weird and funny. (laughs) And uh, Edgar was there. And at one point, you and I were talking over in a corner, and we sort of bonded a little bit over feeling a bit jilted by our respective creative lovers. (laughs) Because Joe and Edgar were collaborating in earnest at that point. That's right. We were like the kind of the ones left behind. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember saying to you, like, do you feel weird about it? Because I do.
1: And I remember that. I remember getting, me and Edgar were doing something at Big Talk. And Joe came along. And Joe was going to do the second shift that day, I think, with Edgar. They were writing Ant-Man or something like that. Maybe. Yeah, I think it was Ant-Man they were working on. And Joe turned up at the office and I sort of had to leave, you know. And it was such a strange feeling of like. All right, well, I'll, uh, I'll be going then and then yeah. going down the stairs and sort of. Have show. a nice time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's strange. And I, I did feel a little bit odd about that because Edgar and I always wrote together, you know. And then suddenly he was writing with Joe. And I felt the same thing when he wrote with Michael Bacall as well. But then I'm sure he felt the same thing when Nick and I went and wrote Paul or wrote Paul. or It is odd that double act. Not that you. Are a double act. I guess with you and Joe, because you were Adam and Joe. You know that's that's how you were known. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, and and so for you know your own feeling about it must have been a bit strange.
0: It was. I mean, it was just a difficult time anyway, just trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, yeah, you
1: know, uh, Joe always wanted to sort of had made noises about drifting into directing or whatever. Or...
0: Well, we always we all. I mean, I've spoken about this a lot before, but. That's what our friendship was based on was the course, idea yeah. that we were going to make films together. Right? right, right. And certainly Joe was better placed to do that than I ever was. And, and it was his dream much more than it was mine. And he had a proper passion and a proper talent for it way more than I did. But I certainly wanted to be involved. I kind of imagined that I would be, um, you know, the Simon Pegg to his Edgar Wright kind of <laughs>
1: at that point. You know, yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. like
0: be in it and yeah, I'd be really funny and I'd be great and uh, it would be really good. I had to come to terms with the fact that I wasn't really best placed to do that. Yeah, really. yeah, yeah. Actually, he, he, we didn't work that well in that way, you know. And he had to find another way of doing things, and it was quite a painful process to, to let it all unfold and yeah, I'm sure slot into place.
1: And you didn't ever feel like you wanted to do to sort of like get a project and 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 bring it to fruition yourself, like, without him or, or like... I mean, I I'm not talking about filmically. I've yeah. done tons of stuff without him, but I mean...
0: No, no, no I just didn't have... Um, I didn't have the drive and the ideas. Those are the only two things I was missing. I had everything else except the actual will to do it <laughs> and the ideas. But apart from that, I was there. But you're the guy that did the
1: commentary on the Priory. You've got you are the, you're the most know. motivated kind of creator I've ever met. But,
0: but motivated to—motivated to make things that are completely worthless <laughs> 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 and have no practical value whatsoever. It's <laughs> <That's>
1: very admirable.
0: <laughs>
1: oh my god!
0: And now he won't even tell me the fucking doodle story. <laughs> This is an advert for Squarespace. I took one look at that website and I knew that the woman I have been living with is not my wife. I'd never been any good with computers. So when I showed the website that I had built to sell my paintings to Tom, he just refused to believe that I had made it. And he started telling people that the government had taken his wife and replaced her with an AI. But Debbie had made the website herself. After hearing an advert on a podcast, she had visited Squarespace.com Buxton and done a free trial. They had all these professional-looking templates there, so I chose one I liked, and I started typing into it. And then I dragged in some pictures, I uploaded a video. Before I knew it, I had a website. I've seen the Matrix. I know that you need big green numbers and a long leather coat to build a website. It's just not that easy. But it was that easy. And when Debbie decided she wanted to purchase her new website, she remembered the offer code from the podcast. I typed in Buxton, and I saved 10%. I was jumping up and down and shouting in your face at Tom, and it was around then that he started with the conspiracy theory. Why don't you go to squarespace.com slash Buxton, Tom, and you could see how easy it is to build your own website. Because that's exactly what they want me to do. Continue <laughs> Welcome back, Podcats. Simon Pegg there. Very good to see Simon again after all these years. I'm very grateful to him indeed for his time, for picking me up from the station, for giving me some tea for the Bowie album, Peter and the Wolf. Thanks, man. And let's hope that I don't get in trouble with cornballs. I don't think I got any particularly privileged information out of Simon there. I'm due to record the Christmas special with Joe in a few weeks, so we'll see if the atmosphere is a bit frosty from Jaycorn. Quick recommendation for you before I say goodbye today. It's uh, a blog that I've been reading recently. It's one of the very few places on the internet that doesn't leave me feeling angry, dirty, and ashamed. Although, admittedly, I may be partly to blame for that situation, but this blog is called Brain Pickings. I'm sure a lot of you know it, it's very successful. It is the work of a Bulgarian journalist called Maria Popova, P-O-P-O-V-A. She lives in New York. And Maria's blog is like, well, it's like a lot of others in that it's a series of posts about things that she considers interesting, that she's kind of archiving from a variety of sources. But unlike a lot of other blogs It does not rely exclusively on fun, but totally inconsequential distractions. The articles that Maria Popover puts together on brain pickings are consistently interesting and thoughtful and accessible. They're about uh, subjects like history and art and philosophy and current events, and and they often take the form of sort of mini-essays interspersed with excerpts from books she's read on those subjects... Um, They're very well chosen and well edited. Many of the extracts she chooses are concerned with the interplay between hope and cynicism and the difficulty of keeping a truly open mind, especially in the current global climate. So if you want an antidote to the kind of shouting and angry judgmentalism that you get on a lot of places on the internet these days, then give brain pickings a go as a uh, a thoughtful and inspiring palate cleanser i've posted links in the description of this podcast to a couple of brain pickings articles that i read recently and found very interesting so see what you reckon that's it for this week thank you very much indeed to seamus murphy mitchell for his production support thanks seamus really appreciate it uh, thanks to ACAST for hosting this and many other great, great podcasts. Rosie, should we head back? The sun is almost down. It is windy and cold. And the sofa beckons. Till next time, we share the same mind space. Stay fresh with the beat. Keep your room nice and neat. Watch what you eat. That's the word on the street. I love you. Bye!